Welcome to this podcast from the Drug and Therapeutics Bulletin. My name is David Fazakli and I'm DTP's Deputy Editor. As part of the celebrations for DTP's 60th anniversary, we've recorded a series of interviews with people who have been associated with the journal over the years. In this one, I talked to Dr. John Dowden, who edited the Australian Prescriber Journal for a long, long time, and has been a long-standing colleague and friend of DTP. On its website, Australian Prescriber describes itself as an independent, peer-reviewed journal that provides critical commentary on drugs and therapeutics, and it's aimed at health professionals. And like DTP, Australian Prescriber was a founder member of the International Society of Drug Bulletins, and so we share similar aims and objectives. In this podcast, John talks about his association with DTB and his work with the journal, and again, the links between our two publications. At the time of recording, John highlighted that public funding for the organisation that publishes Australian Prescriber, that's NPS Medicine Wise, was under threat. And unfortunately, the Australian government withdrew funding and NPS Medicine Wise closed at the end of December. Very sadly, John and his team were made redundant. And at the moment, the future of Australian Prescriber is uncertain. We wrote an editorial that criticises the decision to remove funding from NPS Medicine Wise. And you can find this in the January 2023 issue of DTB. And there's a link to this editorial in the notes that accompany this podcast. I just wonder if you could introduce yourself and say a little bit about your background, what you did in your in your career before you joined Australian Prescriber. Yes, well, I've been at Australian Prescriber for a long time now. Um, I became the editor in 1990. I'm a medical practitioner. I've worked in a variety of uh, countries and a variety of different roles. Uh, I actually trained in the UK and that's when I first became aware of the Drugs and Therapeutics Bulletin. Students are always fond of free stuff and every couple of weeks a copy of the Drug and Therapeutics used to arrive and um, it was something that I took note of and actually collected. The um, Australian Prescriber uh, is um, the equivalent, if you like, of the Drug and Therapeutics Bulletin in, in Australia, but uh, we have more of a, a medical journal model uh, rather than a newsletter-type publication. You joined in 1990. When, when did Australian Prescribers begin? Yeah, a service subscriber started off in 1975. And we've probably got very similar audiences. Uh, Australian Prescriber is aimed at health professionals, specifically medical practitioners and pharmacists. Our biggest audience groups would be general practitioners and uh, community pharmacists. The... Um, content of Australian prescribers determined by an independent editorial committee of practicing clinicians. Uh, all the articles are commissioned. Um, they're all peer-reviewed. So a typical issue would consist of editorials, uh, articles, reviews of new drugs, which have recently been approved for use in Australia, 
And we also have occasional features, which might be a review of um, a diagnostic tests or interpretation of abnormal laboratory results uh, or a case report about a drug interaction or an adverse uh, effect. So since we began publishing electronically in 1996, um, our online audience has grown to where it is now. So each month we get between quarter of a million and 300,000 individuals um, looking at the content every month. Um, so it's got quite a wide reach and obviously that extends uh, beyond uh, Australia. And are you online only now or are you print and online? Since 2016, we've just been online only. That's purely um, an economy measure. We publish six times a year and um, the Drug and Therapeutics Bulletin had a, a little bit of a role in that. Um, in uh 1997, uh, we were being published by the Department of Health and uh, as um, government departments do from time to time, they they decided it was time to have a review. And um, so Australian Describer and its role was reviewed by none other than Dr Andrew Herxheimer, who was the editor of Drug and Therapeutics Bulletin at the time. So he came out to Australia and talked to people across the country and then made a a recommendation and uh, one of the key parts of the recommendation was that the frequency of Australian prescribers should be increased so we went from being a quarterly publication to being six times a year Um, so from 1999 uh, we've published every two months. And Australian prescribers I understand it is part of a larger organisation uh, NPS medicines wise, what's the relationship between the, the two parts and what does NPS medicine wise do? Australian prescribers now published by NPS medicine wise. Um, that was an organisation which was set up by the Department of Health in 1998. And um, its main function is to implement the quality use of medicines component of the Australian National Medicines Policy. So it's very much focusing on how medicines are used. The international term is the rational use of medicines. In in Australia, we refer to it as the the quality use of medicines. NPS Medicine Wise took over the publication of Australian Prescriber in um, 2002. The organisation is funded by the Department of Health and in turn the NPS provides the budget for running Australian Prescriber. And I mean, you and I have talked about this this before. Conflicts of interest policy have, have exercised many of us around the world for some time. What's the situation with Australian Prescriber at the moment with conflicts of interest policy and how do you manage that? I mean, so overall... NPS Medicine Wise has a, a conflict of interest policy. Within Australian Prescriber, we um, tend to follow the principles set down uh, by the International Committee of Medical Journal Editors, because, uh, as I said earlier, Australian Prescriber is sort of more of a medical journal than a newsletter-type publication. 
So we ask all the authors to declare their conflicts of interest. We also ask all the, the referees um, to declare their conflicts of interest. And, and in Australia, do you have, in, in the States, they have uh, their open payments database so you can look up authors and, and see whether they've had any funding. It's the, you know, obviously the one that the farmer industry have to report to. Is there anything like that in Australia? We don't, we don't have, we have a voluntary one in the UK and it's not comprehensive and it's not uh, that useful. Do you, do you have a system in, in Australia where you can check people? Yes. The industry organisation in Australia is, is called Medicines Australia, and they have a code of conduct which governs the promotion of pharmaceutical uh, products. So as related to that code, they have um, a commitment to transparency of funding to health professionals. So indeed, you can go to the Medicines Australia database, key in the name of a practitioner, and it will come up and inform you of any funding that they've received from uh, a pharmaceutical company. So anybody, member of the public health professional, can go and look at that database. There are some limitations, and we've published articles and editorials around disclosure and um, industry funding, so uh, they'd be available through the Australian Prescriber website if uh, people are interested to find out more. And you talked about your content and, and mentioned that you have you know, a, a medical journal model, but you also do articles on, on new drugs. How do you involve pharma in an article on a new test? If you're, if you're reviewing the latest I don't know, antiviral for, for COVID, how do you involve pharma? In terms of our new drug comments, they're written uh, in-house by the editorial team. We don't get external authors to write reviews of new drugs. Uh, we prepare them in-house and they're reviewed by the, the editorial committee. So hopefully that negates any conflict of interest at that level. Our involvement with industry is um, fairly minimal. When we find out that a new drug has been approved for use in Australia, uh, we'll contact the company and ask them for data supporting their product. Usually that's not forthcoming. And we've had a, a practice over many years. If you look at our new drug comments online, you'll see at the end of uh, each comment, we give a transparency rating, um, which um, indicates what the company has disclosed to us. Um, so at the most basic um they might send us the product information, which is a publicly available document, so there's not much <laughs> transparency there. Um, but some companies are quite happy to send us the sort of clinical evaluation reports uh, of their product. Um, so we, we make a note of, of that for e each of the comments that we write. The only other piece of information we get from the industry is the marketing date, because what we try and do is publish a review of a new drug around about the time that it first appears on the market. Um, this is because that when a drug is first marketed, the information about it is limited and usually comes from the company. So we try and get an independent assessment out there at that time that the drug's first um, 
available for prescription. And would you send a draft to the company for for comment or, or do you just rely on what they send you? What uh, we do with our new drug comments, we prepare them in-house. Um, we would never send a copy of the draft to the pharmaceutical company for comment. That's been a, a principle for many years at Australian Prescriber that uh, we will publish and open to um, criticism in the correspondence columns. So we, we don't seek pre-approval or anything like that. And I think we very rarely get any complaints about what we write. Um, I think that's because our new drug comments are very carefully prepared and they're based on the evidence. Um, so it's very difficult to argue against the actual data that have emerged from clinical trials. Um, okay, it's open to interpretation, but um, uh, if we stick to the facts, it's very difficult for the, the companies to um, complain. And when you've done your new drug review, are you, as you say, you do a very balanced uh, report on the evidence. Do you, like the French journal Prescrier, come down with a you know, anything from ranges from a oui or a non, or, or are you just presenting the evidence and saying this is this is what we know about the drug over to you to make your decision on how to use it, or or do you steer clinicians to to its place in therapy? Yeah, increasingly it's it's difficult to know exactly where something's going to fit in into therapy. Um, as you'll be well aware, drugs are approved a lot more rapidly than they used to be, so um, determining their role can be difficult. We try in our sort of conclusion of our new drug comments to, to hazard a guess as to where something might fit into therapy, but we wouldn't give it a, a rating because obviously we're not sitting with the patient in front of us. So uh, there are so many variations that you know the clinicians will have to decide, but we, we try and sort of summarise where we think the evidence is pointing. I mean, you mentioned your 30 plus years of, of editing and you just referenced there the fact that you think medicines are being approved much quicker now. What impression or what what's your instinct that that's doing in terms of, are we forcing the pace too quickly in terms of approving new medicines? Does it worry you that we, we're seeing things coming onto market much sooner than we were before or, or, or is it a good thing? In the history of Australian Prescriber, we were originally published by an organisation called the Therapeutic Goods Administration, which is the um, the regulator of drugs uh, in in Australia. Uh, and in in the nineteen nineties, the Therapeutic Goods Administration began to move towards cost recovery, um, where the industry was paying for its services. Um, and that's one of the reasons we kind of changed publisher because the industry didn't feel it should be contributing to uh, funding a drug bulletin. So I think around the world, we've seen this cost recovery model coming in where there's an inherent problem that you have the regulator being funded by the industry, it's regulating. And I think an inevitable consequence of that is that there's always pressure on 
for new drugs to be approved more quickly. Another um, change in the regulatory world that you'll be aware of is um, increasing moves to harmonisation of regulatory requirements. Um, now, that's, there's obviously benefits to that, but I think a key theme running through these harmonisation arrangements is getting drugs to market faster. That might be a good thing, but there are risks to that. We've published one or two articles in Australian Prescriber on the potential dangers of fast-tracking drug approvals. We know from uh, overseas that some drugs which have been approved rapidly end up being withdrawn for various reasons. So there is a risk um, to the patients. Great, having early access to a product, but if it doesn't work or if it has serious adverse effects that we don't yet know about, then that is obviously um, a problem. And as you know, if a product is approved on a surrogate endpoint, we have to be sure that the research is being done after the drug is marketed to confirm that that surrogate endpoint translates into a clinical benefit for the patients. And one of the things I think that you touched on there that we're seeing here in the UK, and I just wonder if, if you're seeing something similar in Australia, is that we have the regulator, the MHRA. We have, uh, well, in England, we have NICE. In Scotland, we have the Scottish Medicines Consortium who uh, look at how a drug should, once it's licensed, how it should be used and where it fits in clinical guidelines. And then we have the Department of Health who see, fund healthcare they all seem to be coming closer and closer together and working with pharma to speed up the um, the approval and introduction of, of drugs. To some extent, and the point about um, surrogate markers is, is a good one because that's what we're seeing being implemented over here as well. Is that something you've seen in Australia? And is that is that of concern to you? I think the sort of risk component of a new drug is being shifted from the industry onto the public. Because um, if a drug is approved on, say, phase two data, that's pretty preliminary. But once it's on the market, where's the obligation to continue to collect the data to make sure that what we saw in phase two is... Uh, confirmed in, in phase three, whereas previously the industry would have had the expense of running the phase three trial before they got the drug on the market. If it's on the market sooner, um, you know, there has to be strong regulation to make sure that the, the evidence is collected to confirm any benefit. As we said earlier, there is an increasing trend for drugs to be approved more rapidly and that sort of also transfers the onus then on to, okay, the drug's approved, but who pays for it? So that's, if you, you consider drug regulation to be a barrier, well, that barrier's been lowered, but the cost becomes the next barrier um, because you'll be aware that most new drugs that we're seeing 
around the world are very expensive. So that's that's a new challenge. Um, we've got some wonderful scientific breakthroughs which have been developed into new medicines, but what can we afford? That's the um, the question for the future. How does Australia manage that difficult question of, of what's cost-effective and, and what's not? We obviously have NICE and its equivalent bodies are in, in different parts of, of the United Kingdom. What's what's the model in Australia? Is it centrally authorised or is it done by state by state? Yes, well, this reflects uh, a little bit the different funding models of healthcare in, in, in Australia in that because we have states, state governments uh, are largely responsible for the hospital system, whereas um, general practice and would be covered at, uh, by the Commonwealth government. So there's always a bit of a, a mismatch between this, the state governments and the, the federal governments uh, in terms of funding for medicines. The uh, national approach, um, we have an organisation called the Pharmaceutical Benefits Advisory Committee. So if a drug has been approved for use in Australia, it'll be considered by the Pharmaceutical Benefits Advisory Committee, which will look at its cost effectiveness. I think Australia was one of the first countries in the world to have economic analysis of new drugs, um, sort of looking at cost effectiveness. The evidence has to be presented as to the price that the company is asking for a product. What does that translate to in quality-adjusted life years or other outcome measures? Um, so for the bulk of prescribing in general practice, the, the drugs are covered by the pharmaceutical benefits scheme and drugs are added to that scheme on the recommendation of the Pharmaceutical Benefits Advisory Committee. But obviously with drugs which cost hundreds of thousands of dollars per dose, um, there obviously has to be some other mechanism for approving them. And that's obviously you, you then start getting into the political arena. Just going back to your your long and illustrious career, I'm just wondering how many DTB editors you've overlapped with. Presumably, Andrew had retired by the time you started, but Joe was at the helm? No, I think Andrew was still there when I first started, then uh, Joe Collier, then Ike, and then after that, um, yourself and James. Yes, there's been a few changes. Obviously, we've seen changes at the Drugs and Therapeutic Bulletin, the, the, the frequency, the style, the publisher uh, have, have all changed over the years. So just say at our editorial committee meetings, we look at what's happening in other, other journals uh, who are members of the International Society of Drug Bulletins, and um, we always include the Drug and Therapeutics Bulletin so that we can see um, which of our ideas you've followed up on. So um, that's uh, a regular f- feature for us. We, we always like to think that you're ahead of us and we, we'll, we'll, always borrow, <laughs> we'll always borrow a good idea when we, when, when, when we, when we see it. And, and what about ISDB? You mentioned International Society of Drug Bulletins. Again, you're, you're like us. Well, you're, we're founder members. 
That's correct. That, that was obviously before my time, but uh, I believe that um, Australian Prescriber and Drug and Therapeutic Bulletin were uh, among the, the founder members. Uh, I think um, it, it's great that we've got that connection. Um, obviously, the drug bulletins are all slightly different, and you know, I think we all try and provide information which is um, relevant to our audiences, whether that's in a hospital, uh, a region, or a country. So I think a problem that we all share is funding. There's basically two models of funding a drug bulletin. There's subscriptions uh, or there's um, funding coming from a government or a hospital or a health authority. Uh, so I think resources are always an issue for um, for drug bulletins where, wherever they are. As I said earlier, Australian Prescribe has always been open access and our, our view is you try and reach as many people as, as possible. Uh, sort of concern I would have about subscriptions is that perhaps the people who would most benefit from reading a drug bulletin are the people who are not going to subscribe to it. Going back to the beginning, the Drugs and Therapeutic Bulletin was provided free to students and you know, it's a good um, entree into the world of prescribing. And um, so with the Australian Prescriber, we've always uh, tried to um, support the students where we can because uh, if people get into the habit of uh, reading a drug bulletin in their undergraduate years, we hope that they will go on and continue to read it and um, practice the quality use of medicines uh, once they graduate. Yes, indeed. And we've got um, um, one of the things we've done to mark our 60th anniversary year is we've got a, a reflection piece by Sir Patrick Valance, who's the chief scientific officer to the to the government here in the UK, who recalls his time as a, a medical student and a junior doctor and seeing DTB flop through the door and using it throughout his early early years of, of training so yeah, i agree with you i think i think that the wider you can have your your access and obviously dtb's moved from free access paid for by the department to subscription only is that something would you worry if an australian prescriber were to go down that route i mean is that is that even on the cards with um sustainability of drug bulletins um australian prescriber probably shares similar problems um, to other drug bulletins which receive their funding from a third party. Every few years, unfortunately, there seems to be another crisis um, comes along about whether the funding continues or is reduced. Um, Australian prescriber actually disappeared for a, a short time in the 1980s, uh, and then people realised, you know, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. And uh, there was a, a bit of a, a backlash against the decision to stop publication. And um, so it came back yeah, in the early 80s and has been in continuous publication ever since. Uh, to be right up to date, our parent organisation, NPS Medicine Wise, is, its funding's under review at the moment. So, uh, again, we've, we've got a bit of an uncertainty going into the future um, 
but um, we have this uh, crisis every few years and we just have to sort of uh, learn to live with it. And um, once people sit down and think, you know, see the value of a publication like Australian Prescriber uh, and its, its contribution to the quality use of medicines and ultimately good patient care, then there's usually um, any, any questions are resolved um, because, you know, drug bulletins do play a role. And what's on the top of your priority list? What are your top three things that are priorities for you over the next few few months, both as, as the Australian prescriber in terms of content, but but, but more broadly as, as strategy for the for the journal. So you've got this, this, the uncertainty of, of what might come out of the latest review, but but what's sort of top of your to-do list at the moment? Well, uh, obviously, re- refunding is uh, a priority, but that, that's a sort of internal management issue. <laughs> um, so just put that to one side, um, because in, in terms of the readers, um, they obviously want to see independent, evidence-based, trustworthy information continue, and we'll be doing everything we can to ensure that happens. In terms of topics, um, I think a challenge for Australian Prescriber and other drug bulletins is the emergence of gene therapy. Are gene therapies drugs? Do we review them? What we are doing at the moment is looking at them on a case-by-case basis. Um, Obviously, they are treatments uh, for a particular condition, so we're certainly reviewing them, but we're going to see more of them, and it's it's where they, they fit in because at the moment, you know, there's often a limited number of people who will benefit from these therapies, um, but they all seem to be very expensive. Um, so that that's that's a debate. Um, but in terms of, of the bulletins, uh, re- reviewing them is obviously requiring a, a new set of skills because um, they're, they're obviously quite different from um, conventional medicines. And have you got an editorial in the pipeline? What's your next... Is John Dowden coming off a long run to let off steam about anything in particular? Well, I, I um, over the years, I've published very few editorials because uh, I, I feel that, um, you know, the editor should be in the background, making sure that the articles are informative and, and readable. Um, obviously, if there's uh, a change in the way Australian Describers publish, then I will be saying something about that for, for sure. But um, uh, at the moment, that's a sort of uncertain area. So um, probably can't comment too much uh, on it at the moment, but uh, that might be a, a topic for another time. But um, certainly uh, we'll be writing about it if, if there's uh, any, any major changes. Okay, John, John, thank you very much for your time. Um, anything, final words? No, I think 60th anniversary of the Drug and Therapeutics Bulletin, it's um, you know, a, a great achievement um, you know, to have been there providing information to UK practitioners and students uh, 
for, for so many years, and, and you know, I think there was it was great vision um, to set it up. And like Australian Prescriber, there's been struggles and turmoil and conflict, but you've continued to publish. I'm sure the information is is as valued now as it was in 1962, and you think about the huge differences in practice over those 60 years uh, and the, you know, the fact that drug and therapeutics problem is still providing that role uh, today is uh, fantastic. And um, as I mentioned earlier, every editorial meeting of Australian Prescriber, we look at um, the drug and therapeutics bulletin and um, see what you've got to say about things. And um, it, we, we, we are always glad that you often agree with our view of uh, <laughs> new products. Sometimes um, in advance, possibly. <laughs> well, uh, occasionally. Obviously, the, the UK is a much bigger market, uh, so often drugs will be approved there ahead of their approval in Australia. But um, the um, Drug and Therapeutics Bulletin is there to... Um, review them and keep people informed about what, what what's coming. Uh, and you know, uh, the, I think there's always going to be a role for an independent voice because um, if there was no drugs and therapeutics bulletin, where would people get their drug information from? You know, the pharmaceutical industry produces a lot of information about drugs. It's free of charge. But is that where you want to be getting all your information from um, because in, invariably the industry you know uh, produces products to sell for a profit and um, you know uh, the industry is very important because we'd have nothing to write about if there, if there was no industry but uh, having a critical appraisal um, free of commercial influence, I think is something that uh, health professionals around the world uh, appreciate. And um, I think uh, the fact that the Drug and Therapeutics Bulletin has continued for this length of time shows that um, yeah, it, it, it's valued. Thank you very much indeed for that, John, and many thanks for your time today. It's been great to hear about your work with Australian Prescriber and we certainly understand your concern and share your fears over the future of NPS Medicine Wise and Australian Prescriber. And we wish you well. Thank you for listening to this special 60th anniversary podcast. And I hope you've enjoyed the conversation with John Dowden. If you'd like to hear more episodes from DTP, you can find all our podcasts on iTunes, Spotify and other podcast platforms by searching for DTP. And don't forget that we also have a monthly podcast in which we discuss the content of our latest issue. And you can find more information about DTB and a link to our podcasts on our website at dtb.bmj.com. If you'd like to let us know what you think of these podcasts, please leave us a rating or a comment on the iTunes site, or you can email us directly at dtb.bmj.com. And we're also happy to receive suggestions for other topics that you think we should cover. Thank you for listening. <laughs>